up the fact that he had grown up in a church where they taught him a certain catechism. And catechisms are something that the church has used for centuries as a way of instilling knowledge and teaching people. In fact, the Heidelberg Catechism is one of those catechisms. And I learned this week that the Heidelberg Catechism was commissioned in 1563. It is an old, old catechism. And here's the resource that I looked at said this. It says it was commissioned for the purpose of instructing youth, the youth of the day, and guiding pastors and teachers in their teaching duties. And catechisms, if you're unfamiliar with them, are simple questions and answers. What is this? Here's the answer. So the, here's the very first question and part of the answer to the uh, Heidelberg Catechism. And it says, what is thy only comfort in life and death? And as I said, this is just one part of it, but the answer is that I, with body and soul, both life and death, both in life and death, am not my own, but I belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, in, in our nation, there are so many things that we can place our hope in. It might be a job. It might be a position. It might even be family. Everything becomes around family. Everything revolves around the hope that I have that my kids will grow up to be the adults that we've sought to raise them to be. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's friends that we find our hope in our friends only to oftentimes find them letting us down. Or, I know you're on a break, students, but maybe your hope is in good grades, right? Getting that perfect mark, making sure you're better than that other person. Or maybe it's money, finances. And we can put our hope in money only until the economy causes inflation to go to 10%. And then our money, that thing in which we've hoped, is not as valuable as it was a year ago. Maybe we put our hope in our health or the health of our loved ones. You know, when we're young, we think, I'm invincible. We can do anything. We can eat anything. And then as we get older, we realize I can't do everything. And I certainly can't eat everything. Or... We put hope in political parties, and we think that this election is going to be the one. This one's going to be the one that makes a big change for everything, only to find that even in that election, and the next, and the next, and the next, there's disappointment and frustration. Hopes that don't come to fruition can lead to despair, and even at times can affect our outlook on God, how we view the way that God is working in the world because, of course, our tendency is to think, well, if this is what I hope for and I'm a Christian, then this, was mu this must be what God hopes for in me. And we might sometimes feel like God is not good when difficulties or even death happens. And so today, as we continue our study in John, we come to the famous story of the raising of Lazarus. And I know a lot of us are familiar with this. But I think through this chapter, through our study of this chapter, we get to learn this underlying truth. Now, this truth is not scripture, but this is what I think this chapter gleans. And so if you want to cheat and fill in all your blanks right now, this is your quick moment. But the truth is this. Jesus cares about our pain but may not do what we want because there is a glorious 
outcome in the future. Therefore, we should keep our hope in him alone. Let me, let me read that again. Jesus cares about our pain, but may not do what we want, because there is a glorious outcome in the future. Therefore, we should keep our hope in him alone. You see, this chapter in, in, in John, as, as we walk through this, we're going to not walk sequentially through the raising of Lazarus. We're going to jump around a bit to see how these phrases kind of pull together. But this chapter in John marks the end of what some people call the book of signs. As you know, since the beginning of the year, we've been studying the book of John, and we've seen over and over Jesus using signs as a means of helping people understand who he is. When we come back to this in a couple weeks, in John chapter 12, that begins the beginning of what people call the book of glory. As really we zero in on the last week of Jesus' life before Easter, before his crucifixion. We get to see him revealing himself and his will more and more clearly to his disciples. So let's, let's consider that first phrase that we, that we noted. And the first one says this, and here's the blanks if you'd like to fill in your blanks in the, in the outline. It says this, Jesus cares about our pain. John chapter 11 verses 1 to 5 says this. It says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with the ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother was ill. By the way, up to this point in John's gospel, we've never been introduced to Mary, Martha, or Lazarus. In fact, this incident isn't going to happen until the next chapter. So obviously, as, as we're studying, we can recognize that that story of Mary wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and anointing him with, with oil is something that John's first century audience would have been familiar with, even if they're just now reading this. Just a little inside baseball kind of thing. So he continues. So the sisters sent to him, sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. Jesus clearly had a relationship with them. In fact, we can learn more from the other Gospels. For instance, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, give us a little bit more insight into the relationship that Jesus had with Mary and Martha. And it's clear from Martha's message that she knew of his love for them. She knew that he cared for them, which is why she reached out. A little bit later in the chapter, if you're looking in your Bibles, skip down to verse, verse 28. John 11, 28 to 36 says this. When she had said this, she went and called, so Jesus is there and they're talking, but when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary in private saying, the teacher is here calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but she was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And now when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. 
And when, she saw, when, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come weeping, come also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus was clearly close to this family. And other people could see that he was deeply moved by the death of Lazarus. And in case you're not familiar with the story, Lazarus was sick. They send the letter to Jesus. He waits a bit. Lazarus dies. Obviously, he's in a tomb now. Jesus shows up in town and, and has this little conversation. But I want you to understand that Jesus cares about our pain. And I don't want this to be about us. Because I want to make sure that this is, it's not about us, but it's important for us to recognize that the pain that we go through is on Jesus' mind too. Now let me kind of zoom out and just give us a little bit of a bigger picture. You see, here with Jesus, he is, I believe, the God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, created, never created, you know, of, he was infinitely old. Decided to be born of a virgin. He was he condescended. Imagine leaving the glories of heaven to come and be on earth with people like us. He came to relate to us, to be familiar with our ways. And that he did that because of the depth and care, depth of God's love and his care for humanity, including you and me. His love is so deep and vast that he willingly took on our flesh to relate to our sinful condition and yet did not sin. And then he took the just punishment of our sinful condition by dying on the cross and then conquered that just punishment by rising from the dead three days later. Get this. Jesus cares for us in the pain of sin in which we live. He knows that it mars us. He knows that it corrupts us. He knows what it does to us because he's been tempted in every way, just like we are. And yet beyond that, as we can see in this passage, Jesus demonstrates a deep care and concern for Mary and Martha in their grief, in their pain, and in their mourning. And he is not trying to minimize their pain or rationalize it. In fact, I think Jesus is identifying with it as he empathizes with them in their grief. In light of eternity, the Apostle Paul refers to some of our trials as momentary in light. And in the moment, the, in the pain, those don't feel light or momentary to us. I don't think the death of Lazarus felt light or momentary at all to Mary and Martha. These pains sometimes feel all-encompassing, and, and we have these hopes dashed, all those things they long for Lazarus to live up to, all those things they hope they would see him do, now are gone. The potential is extinguished, and now there are barriers abounding. And for us, sometimes our pain feels that way. Jesus cares for us in the midst of our sinful condition, and he cares for us in the midst of the pain that life brings. Do you guys ever, do you remember the movie The Aladdin? Not the live one, but the animated one that happened like when my kids were really tiny, actually before they were born. 
If you're not familiar with it, this animated boy winds, him, winds up in a cave and he finds one of those uh, things. I forget what. Lamps, there you go. He finds a lamp and he rubs it, not knowing what it is. He tries to polish it up and out pops this genie. And the genie at one point in time says in a big booming voice, Phenomenal cosmic power. Itty bitty living space. Right? He had all this power and yet he was limited to this little tiny container in which he had to live. And I think in much the same way, we have to look at it this way. We see Jesus with this infinite cosmic concern. He is concerned not just about the circumstances that happen in Poolsville, Maryland. He's not just happening, not just concerned with the incidents that happen in, all, in, in, in our church or in our nation or in our world. He's got the concern of all the universe on his mind. And yet, this cosmic vast concern is also concerned about the pain that you and I go through. Phenomenal cosmic concern. Itty bitty application of that in our lives minute application concerning your life and mine. And I hope you just rest in that for a moment, that Jesus cares for our pain. He knows. He knows the struggle and the difficulty. And while he cares for our pain, we have to recognize, secondly, that he may not do what we want. He may not do the things that we want. By inference, we can assume that Mary and Martha knew that Jesus could work miracles. They wrote to him because they knew that he could heal Lazarus, that he didn't have to face death. And they expected that he would come immediately. But look at John 11, verse 6. If you notice in your Bibles, right, after, right before that, in verse 5, it says, And he loved them. He, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. Verse 6. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? How often do we think it's an emergency and we have to get right there and Jesus stayed? I thought he loved them. And yet he stayed where he was. He waited. And then when Jesus finally did come, Martha expressed her desire and even her disappointment. And in her disappointment, there is hope. Look down at uh, verses 20 to 22. It says, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to him and met him. But Mary remained seated in the, in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. Her language hints that she believes Jesus can do something, and yet she dares not speak it. God will give you whatever you ask. Maybe bringing it back. And Mary, too, as we saw earlier, had a similar response. Lord, if you had been here, he would still be alive. And then even some of those who were mourning with Mary and Martha seemed to think that Jesus could have done something. Look at verse 37. It says, but some of them said, could not the he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And it was clear that they wanted Lazarus healed. 
they wanted Jesus to come promptly, and they knew he could do something about this situation. And yet Jesus waited and waited and waited. I don't know exactly how long it would have taken for Jesus to get from where he was. If you remember where we left him off, he had been in Jerusalem, went down the hill a couple thousand feet out to the Jordan River and to the other side of the Jordan. Now he's waited two extra days and he's got to make his way back up there. Years ago when Danielle and I took this trip, it's maybe an hour from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Probably an hour and a half to come back up in a bus. But when you're walking, making all that way, that's probably a two-day walk. You're going up this great hill. And John tells us that when he finally gets to the tomb, Lazarus has been dead for four days. You see, when we're going through painful circumstances, whether it's a, a financial turmoil or a physical illness or mental distress or, or that all-encompassing drama at school, we may feel like we know what needs to be done. And it makes sense. Healing was the right answer in, in Lazarus' situation, or so Mary and Martha and all the community thought. We do what we should, and so we take it to the Lord in prayer. They reached out to him. They prayed on a note and said, hey, he whom you love is ill. Come quickly. And we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we invite others to pray with us. And sometimes we get to the point where we've prayed so much, we wonder, is God listening through the roof of this sanctuary? Can you hear us? Because sometimes it feels like silence. Jesus may answer our prayers in the right time. And yet we have to recognize that he may wait. And here's the third phrase that we get to think about. Because there is a glorious outcome in the future. Jesus cares about our pain, but he may not do what we want because there is a glorious outcome in the future. You see, when Jesus finally gets to Bethany and he sees Martha and, and she confronts him with her disappointment and yet hope and gives us a little insight into what this Jesus, you know, she gives us a little insight into what this glorious outcome might be. Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And here's hope. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know I'm going to see him then, but I want him now. I want him here. And Martha demonstrates complete confidence in that glorious future, in that resurrection on the last day, something that believers have. We have this hope and eternal life that the end here is not the end because we have life eternal. Jesus rose from the grave, and so we know that the grave is not our end. And she believed that. And yet after talking with Martha and Mary away from the tomb, Jesus finally makes his way to the graveside and weeps on behalf of the family and over the death of, the, of Lazarus. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. 
And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there is an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So Jesus is finally ready to act. He's ready to do something tangible as an expression of his care for them. In the grander scheme of things, he's finally ready to reveal more fully who he is. And so look at verse 41. It says, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on the account, on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You see, if you think back, there was a moment when Jesus was up north. He was in, in, in uh, Cana, and about 20 miles away, there was this kid who was sick, and the dad came rushing over to Cana saying, Jesus, please heal my son. And Jesus healed the boy from a distance. He said, go, your child will be well. Jesus didn't have to be there. And if Jesus had done that for Lazarus when he was on the other side of the Jordan, if he said, go, Lazarus will be fine, this would have just been another miracle. Oh, yeah, there's Jesus, the miracle-working guy. He can do wondrous things. He doesn't even have to be there. But by waiting, Jesus created the opportunity to show that he has been sent from God, and he's able to make it clear. See, Lazarus is dead, or as Miracle Max says in The Princess Bride, he is all dead. He's not just mostly dead. He is all dead. Jesus raises him from the grave. Who but God can raise the dead? And Jesus raised this man to life. And so now, in people's minds, is Jesus God? In John's narrative, the raising of Lazarus becomes the final sign that John lays out beside the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. It's the final sign that John lays as an argument for us to put together as we consider what he's laying out. In fact, if you remember, John 20, 30 to 31 says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, the ones that John chose, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, waiting... Those two extra days, waiting till Lazarus was in the grave for four days, created an opportunity for God's glory to be revealed in Jesus Christ. But you see, there's a bigger picture being told, we are, and we are simply one part of that. In fact, Lazarus being raised from the dead caused some to put into motion plans that would ultimately lead Jesus to the cross. Look down in verses 45 to 53. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary 
had seen what he did and believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They are threatened. Their authority is threatened because Jesus can do all of these things. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man die should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. You see, the sign of raising Lazarus to life became a pivotal event in Jesus' earthly life and ministry. His antagonist put in motion the actions that would ultimately lead to his death burial, death and burial, and, and then unbeknownst to them, his resurrection. You see, they were rightly believing that God would use his death to bring together the children of God. And yet they didn't understand what, what that meant, how that worked out. They didn't understand how that uniting would happen. They didn't understand ultimately that it would be necessary for Jesus to die and rise from the grave in order to fully pay for our sin and reconcile us with humanity. Their plan was his destruction. God's plan was his glorification as the risen sacrificial lamb. Their plan was to retain power. Let's get him out of the way, put him in a tomb, then we can have all the power to us. People can come back to us again. God's plan was salvation for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. For Mary and Martha, there was a temporary glorious outcome in the resurrection of Lazarus. Ultimately, Lazarus died again, and it would be so interesting to go visit with Lazarus when we get to heaven and be able to say, hey, what was that like being dead for four days? What was that like coming back to life? But all of that pales in comparison to the glorious outcome that will be in that future resurrection in eternity when we get to be with Christ forever. I don't feel like we always, I don't feel like we grasp how big that is. We get to be with Jesus Christ for eternity. Lazarus' resurrection brought temporary relief from the pain of his death. Jesus' resurrection brought eternal relief for us from the just punishment of our sin, not just for us, but for all those who will believe. So Jesus cares about our pain, but we, he may not do what we want because there is a glorious outcome in the future. Here's the last phrase that we can consider. Therefore, we should keep our hope in him alone. Therefore, we should keep our hope in him alone. You see, as Jesus was talking with Martha before he raised Lazarus, he told her, I am the resurrection. Look at verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he 
live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she replied, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. I think part of what Jesus was calling her to is belief in him. Satisfaction in him. Delighting in him. Hope in him. Trusting that he is sufficient. Even if she doesn't get to see Lazarus today. Even if she has to wait till eternity to see him. She, he wants her to find satisfaction, hope, contentment in Jesus Christ alone now. He is clearly pointing to, to a future resurrection and eternal life because of faith in him. He is the object of our hope. Not trying to fix a problem. Not trying to ease our pain. And I almost wonder if Lazarus' illness and Lazarus' life had become a bit of an idol for Mary and Martha. Jesus, we know you love us, but Lazarus. Jesus, Lazarus. Jesus, I know you're good, but Lazarus. His death, Lazarus' death, became a means to test their faith and belief. His resurrection became a source of confirmation that Jesus is sufficient, that he is enough. And so as we look at the pain that God allows us to encounter, I think it's important to ask, is relief from this pain an idol to us? Do I want this problem fixed more than I want to just delight in Jesus Christ? If he never fixes this, am I okay with that? Do I want relief, healing, restoration, and peace more than I want Jesus? And what if instead of praying for relief from the pain, and I think we should, I think we need to pray for healing for people. We need to pray when we're in a bind, we need to bring people around and pray together. But we need to be content to know that Jesus Christ is enough? What if we were to ask for grace and strength to endure and to glorify God in the pain that he has called us to be in? We may never get to understand the why behind certain challenges, we may, but we do get to know the who behind it all. He is our hope. There's an old African-American spiritual that Helps us remember this. Now think about this. These spirituals were, were written, were sung by people who were slaves. Hear the words of this. This person whose life is not their own. This person who is treated like a piece of property. Whoever wrote this, however this came about, I'm not quite sure. But listen to these words. The song says, in the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise. Give me Jesus. And when I'm alone, oh, when I'm alone, and when I'm alone, give me Jesus. And when I come to die, oh, when I come to die, and when I come to die, give me Jesus. And the chorus says, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, 
You can have all of this world. Give me Jesus. Is Jesus your hope? Is he sufficient? Even if he doesn't remove the pain? Have you trusted him as your savior? And I want to encourage you, if you haven't, let today be the day of your salvation. Let today be the day that you respond and say, Jesus, you are my hope. As that catechism question said, Jesus is, it asked, what is our only hope in life while we're living and in death? It's easy to think Jesus is our hope in death. We have eternal life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's then. But this is now. Jesus is our hope in life now. Let, let's pray. God, we do thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what you did miraculously in Lazarus' life. And God, we pray that you would help us to delight, to enjoy you. Martha believed that you are the Christ, who, the Son of God who had come into the world. In the midst of pain, in the midst of disappointment, God, help us to enjoy you. We know that there is a glorious future when we get to be united with you for all eternity. We get to fellowship with you. We look forward to that day with great anticipation. But in the midst of this time, help us to find contentment, even in the pain you allow us to encounter. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. While the band is coming up, I want to just encourage you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, let's deal with that. Because it's not coming to church. It's, you could be in church for 100 years and still never be a follower of Christ. If you've not responded to his salvation, let's have a conversation after church or get together this week. I'd love to open the word of God and help you see how you can believe in him. Let's stand.